0: Hello, this is your host, Eric Fleming. Before I get to the episode, I want to follow up on my Roe Repeal Observation podcast and further address the June 24, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting podvoices.help. That's podvoices.help. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds Including the ones I mentioned in the Row Repeal Observation podcast. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Thank you. Hello. Welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. Um, today, as we record this podcast, um, word has gotten out that two people who I admired growing up have gone on to the other realm. Some people say a Heavenly Reward. Um, those two people that, that we know, especially in the Black community, are Michelle Nichols and Bill Russell. The former, you may know her, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe not by her given name, but by her character name. She was the lady who played Lieutenant Yhura in the original Star Trek show. Um, she was one of the first uh, black women to have a major role, especially in a science fiction show. Um, But in television altogether. Um, Her claim to fame on that show, of course, is not only the fact that she was, you know, a female on the bridge with Mr. Spock and Captain Kirk and all that, but um, there was one episode where Lieutenant O'Hara kissed Captain Kirk you have to remember this wasn't 2022 this was like in the 1960s i forget what year that episode actually aired but that was a huge deal i mean we were the supreme court hadn't even ruled on loving yet um the case that legalized interracial marriage in the united states um and that was provocative and um but you know Nichelle Nichols was was a star she had been a I think a Broadway star before she got this television role and she has been forever linked to Lieutenant Uhura regardless of what other roles she played after that um and so she was one of those enduring, endearing, I should say, and enduring, but endearing figures as well in the community. Um, but her fav- my favorite story that she used to tell was that there was a lot of pressure on her being that sole Black actress on that show. And she felt like she really didn't want to continue that role. And You know, like most actors, they didn't want to be typecast, didn't want to be degraded. You know, a lot of things were going on. And then she happened to be in an event and Dr. King was there. And she had mentioned to him that she was thinking about. He he told her that he was a Trekkie. He was a Star Trek fan. And uh, can you imagine the man who is fighting for the rights of Black Americans during his downtime would sit down and watch science fiction? You know? I mean, it shows how human we really are, right? So he told her he was a big fan of the show and she thanked him for that. But she kind of announced to him that she was planning on leaving the show. And he told her you can't. She seemed kind of startled by that, but he explained. He said, it's a good show, but you're the reason why I watch the show and other African, you know, other black folks or at that time he probably used the term Negroes watch the show as well. It is refreshing. I think he said to her and recollecting her side of the story, refreshing to see one of us on that little screen. And because of that conversation, she became an icon because she stayed with the show. And the reason why they had that meeting was because she was involved in the movement. One of the things that people, when they romanticize or they uh, deify people and movements, is that they forget the gritty stuff people that are involved in movements now understand what's going on, what they have to do and all this kind of stuff. It was the same in the 1960s, probably even worse because they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the internet, you know? So they had to do a lot of the work physically and with paper. And one of the big things that the movement had to do, which is something that people don't even talk about even with Jesus, right? But that's a whole nother conversation. They had to raise money. You know, to go to these different cities and organize these protests and make sure that money was available to bail people out and all this kind of stuff. You know, you had to raise that money to do that. And so Dr. King had a network of Hollywood stars white and black, that financed the movement or helped finance it. And uh, Nichelle Nichols was one of those people that gave money to the movement. So put a pin on that. We also lost Bill Russell. Bill Russell was one of the They called him the winningest athlete in American sport. He won two national championships in college. People forget that. The University of San Francisco Dons, uh, which was one of the most successful basketball programs in college history, no longer exists because of a scandal that happened. And it happened after this one guy who ended up playing for the bulls. And and now I can't remember his name, Quentin something. I think it was, um, they discontinued the program, but you know, Bill Cartwright played there. Uh, I don't think they won a championship with Cartwright, but they won two when Bill Russell played. And he was a local kid. He grew up in Oakland went across the, the bridge to um, play for the University of San Francisco. Then he got drafted by the Boston Celtics. And in 13 years, he won 11 championships. Two of those years, he was the coach. He was the player coach. He was the first African-American coach and the first African-American coach to win a championship. And he won two. But he won 11 NBA titles altogether as a player. And he also won a gold medal in 1956 when we just were sending the amateur guys over there to the Olympics. He won a gold medal. So basically every time Bill Russell played a game that meant something for the most part, he won. He was a winner one of the best defensive players, best rebounders to ever play the game. Could have been a, a scoring threat, but that wasn't his mindset. People look at Dennis Rodman, right? And they they say, well, you know, Rodman doesn't like to shoot. Well, Bill Russell was the same way. They were capable of scoring. People forget Dennis Rodman led the NCAA one season in scoring. That's how he got noticed and got picked up by Detroit, right? And when he got in the NBA, he focused on playing defense and rebounding. Well, Bill Russell did the same thing. And he was one of the best to ever do it, especially at the center position. So he was a force on the court. But what I noticed, and a lot of people were paying tribute to him today, um, is they recognizing what a force he was off the court. And they're highlighting that. And there's a classic picture of a press conference when Muhammad Ali was having his fight to, against the draft, which stripped him of his heavyweight boxing title. There's a picture of Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was Lou Alcindor at the time, I don't, I don't think he had made the transition at that point point. and bill Russell. And in that time, in that period to see black guy, and Willie Davis is in that picture. There's uh Carl Stokes, the Congressman, uh, was in the picture. Um, But the most prominent that people recognized, the ones that were at the mic, were Bill Russell, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and Lou Al-Sender, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And so just that press conference alone sent a message. And, And what people don't get because they weren't around during that time and I was just a toddler, pretty much, um, was that Bill Russell played in Boston. <laughs> you know, and, and Boston has never been a city. It It's more amenable now in the 21st century. But when I was growing up, well, let me put it in perspective. So, growing up in Chicago, there's a neighborhood called Bridgeport. Both Mayor Daly's, the, the dad and the son, grew up there, lived there most of their lives. Um, that was the Irish section of town. That's basically right at the edge of that is where the White Sox play. That time, Kaminsky Park. And Bridgeport was not a place if you were black that you wandered off to. You might go to a baseball game, but you didn't go further west than Comiskey Park. You went back on the Dan Ryan or, you know, to the train station or whatever. You went home or drove down Wentworth or whatever. You didn't go west. You didn't hang out at the pubs over there. You didn't eat at any of the taverns over there. You went home. Uh, For those who did not do that, uh, they encountered violence. And not just verbal jabbing or harassment or throwing tomatoes and not it was actually beat downs. It was so bad over there in Bridgeport that um a black mailman was assigned that route. And uh he got beat up. Strictly because he was black. Didn't matter he was delivering the mail to these people. He got beat up. And so the first people that was charged with a hate crime in the state of Illinois were the people that attacked that mailman, let alone the federal charges they had to face for not only assaulting a postal worker, a postal carrier, but federal hate crimes as well, violation of civil rights law. So those young men basically grew up in prison systems. But they didn't care because that was kind of the mindset of those folks. Have you ever seen the movie Gan- I suggest you it, to kind of get a sense of that kind of mindset, why you don't care. You need to watch this movie called the Gangs in New York. Because you had the Irish and the Italians and all these other different ethnic groups fighting each other for territory in the city. Uh, and so... That was just kind of their mindset. They were the hooligans. They were the guys. Bridgeport was their neighborhood, and anybody that wasn't Irish, Catholic, gotta be that. They weren't welcome. I say all that to say, Boston is bigger than Bridgeport. Bridgeport is a neighborhood. Boston's a whole city, and that was kind of the mindset of that city, especially the whites that lived there even if they weren't Irish Catholic, that was their mindset. One of my other images growing up was watching the first day of busing in the city of Boston and watching a guy, a black man, who I think he was a lawyer, a nice little three-piece suit on, you know, back in the day with the flare bottom pants and all that but he was literally being hit with a flagpole across his head by some white folks who were protesting the busing of black kids into their schools. Now, from what I remember, he just happened to be walking by. Don't know if he said anything to the protesters. Don't know really if the protesters told him to walk away, but he was going to work. And so the image that went around the world was him stumbling as he has been hit by a flagpole across his face. And that was the image of Boston. Now, Bill Russell had long stopped playing by that time. But if they were doing it in the 70s, just imagine what it was like in the 60s when he was playing there so if he was not a member of the best basketball franchise in history how he would how would he have been treated as an ordinary citizen in boston he would have hung out in roxbury or whatever or a black neighborhood was set up there and he just been a tall black man trying to stay out of trouble. And Bill Russell had a sense of that. He was a very smart man. And he took advantage of the cachet he had being a champion basketball player in Boston to fight for civil rights for black folks not only in Boston but throughout the country. He understood the symbolism of a guy playing for the Boston Celtics speaking up against discrimination. He got it. And he made his presence known. And just like how Jim Brown and and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did their things in their respective fields, you know, uh, Bill Russell was doing his thing. And so, we lost two great ones. Not just for the excellence they had in their profession, but for the commitment they had to the cause. They understood what they were doing. They understood the risk and they took it and i don't know i don't know if there's a lot of people that are actors or athletes i think that that's changing let me let me turn it back there was a time period where that activism from actors and athletes waned. They were more focused on their vocations being equal. Athletes were trying to get more money. Actors were trying to get more opportunities on the TV and in the movies. And not just on the camera, but directing and writing and producing. So, there was a period where the focus was just dealing with the discrimination they dealt with at their everyday jobs. And you know, Kurt Flood with the free agency and baseball and all that. So, there was a period where you didn't see a lot of athletes taking positions or actors. But now as we've gone into the 21st century, it's almost kind of part of the job description. Uh, It's not so much trying to be role models, but people taking advantage of their platform. And uh, that's a great thing, because it doesn't matter what profession you're in. If you see injustice, you should fight it. If you're a doorman in an apartment building, and you see an Asian woman getting jumped by somebody, you should find some way to intervene. Vocally, physically, using that cell phone you got. Something. You see black folks being accosted. You see discrimination at your job. You should be vocal about that. Shouldn't be passive. Keep your head down just so you can stay employed. Because what kind of job do you want to be at where they discriminate against one person today, you don't say anything. And then tomorrow it's going to be you kind of world do you want to live in where you see an injustice happening and you don't do anything, but then when the injustice happens to you, you expect everybody to rally around your cause and your side. If there's any a time, any, if there is any time where we need to be connected and live up to, I am my brother's keeper, it's now. It seems challenging because of trust factors that we have in helping people since people like to sue other people now. And we don't have protections as individuals as as a corporation would have legally. But screw all that. If you're in a position to help, help. If you're in a position to fight a wrong, fight it. If you can make a difference, make it. That's really the testimony of Michelle Nichols and Bill Russell. They were good at what they did, but they saw something was wrong. They experienced what was wrong with America and they took a position, they took a stand. And didn't care what the repercussions would be. Because it doesn't matter how much money you have. If society views you a certain way, that's the way you are. It's a phrase I can't really say on this podcast, but... you know it goes the the there's the n-word and then there's the rich n-word what's the difference one of them's rich right so that was the that was what they were dealing with more prevalently the attitude's still out there but it was definitely more of a struggle then when they were at the peak of their careers and they, they used their platforms to try to make a difference. And as people look back at their lives and their contributions, they did make a difference. So, I wanted to open up the podcast with that, I guess, tribute or whatever to them. Uh, Anytime you lose anybody, it's a loss. But when you lose people that have had a major impact on society, it's a bigger loss. And even though it's inevitable that we all have to transition that way, the human emotion still prevails and we mourn. For those of us of the Christian faith, we understand that there's a greater reward for them. Although Bill Russell has been quoted as saying, Heaven might be a step down since he got to play for the Boston Celtics during that time. Um, but in all seriousness, you know, we we hope that they have heard, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And we hope that the legacy that they left will be picked up, will continue to be picked up and embraced. Because we have to get involved. And catch y'all on the other side. And so we're back. And I guess the theme of this podcast is about paying tribute. And it reminded me of a story or yeah, instance where the Pharisees were challenging Jesus about paying tribute to Caesar, or tribute was taxes, and and the the linguistics of that. And Jesus basically asked them, you know, who's on that penny? What image is on that penny? The Pharisees said Caesar's, which led Jesus to say, Render under Caesar, therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's And of course Pharisees tuck their heads and run away, but you know, it's it's important to pay tribute, but it's also important to well let me put it this way tribute doesn't have to always be a memorial doesn't always have to be praise tribute can really just mean respect so there's been a lot of talk and this is the reason why that scripture was important for me to memorialize on this podcast. There's been a lot of talk about separation of church and state. And, you know, people say, well, you know, the constitution, actually the constitution doesn't say that what the constitution does say is that you have the freedom to practice whatever religion you want. And the government has no say so in how you practice that, which also infers that there is no United States of America official government religion, unlike the Church of England in England, right? And that was an important distinction that the framers of the constitution wanted to clarify. And there have been experiments in the, in the colonies already with Roger Williams in Rhode Island um, in trying to have a theocracy that didn't really go well. royal. Rhode Island is still with us. It's one of the 50 states. Rhode Island and the Providence Plantations, by the way. But it is not a theocratic government. It's a democracy just like the rest of the country. And so when we when we look at this argument, it really was spelled out when a group of Baptist ministers tried to um, convince the president at that time, Thomas Jefferson, to take certain positions based on the Bible. And I forget the exact issue that they were trying to address, but. Jefferson's in Jefferson's response to them in a letter he wrote, he actually said, there is a separation of church and state. That's where we get the phrase from that letter his response to the ministers. And so that's been de facto, the mindset of people who govern that there's the government and then there's your own personal belief and so in the 1980s literally almost you know 80 years after that letter the politics of the united states has been shaped by ecumenical descendants of those activist baptist ministers back in 1804 who wanted or still want America to be run as a theocracy. And whereas a lot of us who may practice the Christian faith may ascribe to a lot of the beliefs that those leaders believe in. A lot of us go to their churches even. If they're not elected to anything, then that realm is within the confines of the church and the community they serve now individual believers can carry their beliefs into elected office and do their thing but the governing documents where those decisions have to be based on is the united states constitution and the respective state constitution in which they live not the bible not the Quran, not the Torah or any other sacred book. It's the U.S. Constitution, because when you take the oath to serve in a public office, you swear to uphold the United States Constitution and the Constitution of the state you live and the laws thereof. No mention of the Bible. There is a mention, though, that in some states that you have to have a belief in God <clears throat> but but that oath doesn't make you a minister, if you understand my point. But there are some people who want to say, well, God you know, and you know, you always hear the God bless America from every politician at the end of speech. And uh you you hear these politicians who hang their hat on the morality of the nation. And you know, it's it's like they have no historical shame in saying those things. Because where was the morality of the nation when millions of people were enslaved? Where was the morality of the nation when the indigenous people were basically Put into a state of apartheid. Where has been the morality of a nation that allows children, whether they're in a street gang or they show up at a school or a mall or a movie theater, a church? Whereas that morality allows them to have weapons of war to kill civilians. Why doesn't that morality kick in on those issues? Why doesn't morality kick in when corporations take advantage of people getting more money to get through a pandemic? by raising prices that's creating inflation, right? But you're more concerned about individuals making choices about their healthcare and their reproductive freedom or who they love. You're, You're all in the morality about people's personal business, but you have no morality with business. There's any entity in the United States that's totally devoid of religious intervention, it's capitalism, not government, which really should be the other way around, at least according to the Bible that I've read, because somewhere in the book, it said something about usury and usury In layman's term, is interest on loans. Right? If I loan you five hundred dollars according to the Bible, I'm only supposed to get five hundred dollars back. In capitalism, if I give you five hundred dollars, I can charge you five percent interest. So you gotta pay me five hundred dollars plus an extra twenty-five. to cover the debt. And my argument is that I needed that extra $25 to process the loan that I gave you, to put in the paperwork in the record to keep track of you paying this loan back. There's no morality when we have that conversation, right? And you know they always want to say <clears throat> before they say, let's ban guns, let's let's keep everybody in thoughts and prayers, right Where now thoughts and prayers, if you actually say that that offends people. It's how crazy this society has become, especially with semantics, language. There's actually a group of political thought. In the united states that when you say thoughts and prayers that triggers a negative response in a civilized society that's because has been abused to justify inaction right and but the politicians that embrace that selective morality You know, to say that America is where it is because we've abandoned God. God is not amongst us, which is the greatest religious lie for those of us who are Christian. It is the greatest religious lie ever told because we are taught that God is omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere all the time. We may not acknowledge him. We may not be devoted to him, but he ain't going away. He's right there all the time. That's our belief system. Yet, we still have public officials who are hell-bent, on trying to make America a theocracy and that's and we were set up to be totally opposite of that most of the people who left to establish the colonies were trying to get away from government established religion and so the most anti-american thing we can do is to try to establish a government religion is to try to say that every decision has to be based off of this particular religious thought. People have actually campaigned against other candidates because they in trying to espouse their Christian values, challenge people and say, Oh, you believe in Sharia law, which is the theocratic version of Islam or a sector a sect of Islam anyway so it's bad for the Islamic people to have a theocracy mindset but it's okay for America to, you know the Christians to have it. no the whole premise of this country was to live free or die right? And that freedom, which is enumerated in the Bill of Rights, one of the very first ones that they said was that you are free to believe in what you want to believe in. Even if you don't believe in anything, you're free to do that. They made that clear. That was like the first. Before the guns, it was freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of expression. That was paramount. That was number one before we even got to the well-regulated militia. Booker T. Washington said, a lie doesn't become truth, wrong doesn't become right, and evil doesn't become good just because it is accepted by a majority. Just because a lot of people want to believe that America is truly an extension of the Council of Nice right or well, the other ecumenical councils that were authored by Constantine Constantinople one of them to to lay down the rules and and, and the sanctity of worship in the Christian church. <laughs> they, they want that mindset to be prevalent. And whereas everybody in each respective faith would love to have as many people follow that practice as possible when you have a society where all those different religions exist, you've got to have something unified that limits offense and embraces unity, right? Embraces societal order. That's where the government comes in. You've heard, some people may have heard the U.S. Capitol be labeled as the temple of the people. Because the concept of government is that it's supposed to embrace everybody, especially the United States government, based on the very first amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So it doesn't matter how many days Fox News or OAN or Newsmax or any other station runs that kind of mindset that America's gotta be this Christian nation and they'll they'll surrender and say Judeo Christian. <laughs> right? They'll they'll succeed that point. It's a lie. But I want to go back to where's the morality? because we're we're living it. Three things happened over the last week or so that makes me wonder why are we even having a conversation of morality in this country? The first one deals with Ivana Trump. Donald Trump's first wife died in a sad, tragic way. She fell down in her condo and died of internal bleeding. And you know, she she was in her 70s, so doesn't matter how rich you are or whatever, human bodies are human bodies and at that age you can really do some damage to yourself if you have a severe fall and unfortunately for her she succumbed to those. But the controversy wasn't how she died but how she was buried. So For most people, because of the relationship she had with her ex-husband, former President Trump, it didn't really hit them right away that she was buried at the golf course in Bedminster, New Jersey. Kind of an odd request. I guess she played a little golf with, with her husband, I guess. It's not really documented and wasn't a big deal if she did or not. But, you know, she wasn't known as a golfer like her husband was. And by the way, she she had been married four times throughout her life. And I think President Trump was her second marriage and his first. So it kind of was okay kind of odd but whatever until somebody did some digging and realized something ain't right and with, with Donald Trump that's true something ain't right and what they found out was her being buried at that golf course could make that golf course tax free hundreds of acres 18 holes of Championship golf landscape may not ever have to pay taxes to the state of New Jersey ever again. Because of the law there dealing with cemetery corporations. And because there's public records that Trump tried to establish a cemetery near the golf course, Ivana's death open up an opportunity to make that happen. And so now she's buried at the golf course and Donald Trump make it a tax break for one of the most exclusive golf clubs in America. Where's the morality there, right? Where's the morality when Americans who hear the concerns of, and these are golf athletes and we understand athletes, you know, they're professionals. They want to make money. And there's this golf tournament that's sponsored by the Saudis called the, the live that we refer to as the live. It's Roman numeral 54, I guess that, uh, is luring these professional golfers in with basically salaries to play golf or appearance fees, however you want to label it, guaranteed money. And so these American golfers are running to it. Phil Mickelson was the first one, high profile one. He called off flack for that. And then all of a sudden, other people started joining them after the initial flack went down. And so they had a tournament at that very golf course where Ivana is buried, and the 9/11 people, the survivors, were a little upset about that, and none of the players who more likely gave money during that time that were playing at that time uh, to support and have given money to support those survivors now all of a sudden seems to have turned their back on them even to the point where they didn't even acknowledge them when they came on to the course to play At the tournament, didn't stop to shake their hands or even talk to them, explain what's going on. They just ignored them. And we know that Saudi Arabia played a role in that, more so bin Laden as an individual. But since bin Laden was part of the aristocracy there, And the bin Laden family was one of the few people that could travel on plane after the attacks happened to leave um there's a rough spot there where's the morality in that and then finally we had a there was a bill in Congress that made it out of house. It was said it got over to the Senate. Called the Pact legislation. It basically would have made sure that people who served in Camp Lejeune prior to 1987, say, like from Korean War time to 1987, would get compensated for health care. Problems that they the de- health problems they developed by drinking the water that had been intermingled with the wastewater during that time. And like I said, it passed the House, although there were some Republicans that voted against it. But on the Senate side, after initially getting support for it by at least 25 Republicans, they gathered enough Republicans to block it. So now these people who served in our military, who essentially were poisoned by the camp that they were assigned to, can't get compensated for that. And you had senators, Republican senators, fist bumping each other after they stopped this legislation that would have helped all these people. All these soldiers, all these people who took an oath to defend the very Constitution that these senators operate under. And they were fist bumping in celebration that they had stopped this bill all because they were upset about another piece of legislation. It wasn't even that one. With some other legislation they were mad and so they decided to take it out on the veterans and were celebratory about it. Where's the morality in that? There is none. And none of these decisions all been about money and political power just the essence of those two entities morality doesn't always play a part if any except when it's convenient so a lie doesn't become the truth because the majority of folks want you to believe that wrong doesn't become right because the majority of these folks want you to believe it. Evil doesn't become good because the majority of folks want you to believe it. It is what it is. We have to pay tribute not only to the people who have fallen, but the people who are still here. And when I say pay tribute, we have to respect people. We can't always cater to everybody's wants and desires. We have to temper some things. But these are kind of no brainers. You take care of your veterans. You respect those people. Who gave their lives trying to save those lives that could be saved on 9-11. You want to say never forget, but you kind of forgot when you decided to host these golf tournaments with a country that not only we are now thinking had more to do with 9-11 than initially thought, but we know that they killed an American journalist. We know they did it under the current regime right now. Render under Caesars with Caesars. Render under gods with gods. Separate church and state. Don't make morality convenient for your political experience. Until next time.